In 2017, an organisation called Homeward Bound began advertising, seeking women engaged in science, technology, engineering and mathematics to join a 12-month online course about leadership, culminating in a voyage to Antarctica. The first iteration of this program drew together 76 women and Canadian journalist Samantha Hodder generated the podcast series This Is Our Time from interviews conducted before and after the final voyage and recordings made on the voyage. The first series of This Is Our Time, published in 2018. Samantha Hodder was invited on the voyage at the end of the second iteration of Homeward Bound, though the pandemic and a house fire delayed publication of the second series of This Is Our Time until 2021. This episode comprises an interview with Samantha Hodder about her experiences generating the podcast and travelling to Antarctica as part of the Homeward Bound initiative. Okay. Wow. This has been a long and unrequited connection. <laughs> I'm so sorry it's taken me so long to get on the case and actually line this session up. It, um, it's not for lack of, lack of will. Um, partly it's lack of talent. I'm only still now getting to grips with online studio recording. And uh, yeah, 2022 was, after two years of almost complete inaction, the craziest working year I've ever experienced. Wow, there you go. Uh, yeah, it threw everyone for loop in all kinds of different ways. And uh, anyway, it's great. I mean, everybody had to sort of figure out how they're going to do this job in a different way. So kudos to you to relaunching. And you, you certainly haven't given up. I, I uh, was looking back through your catalog. You've been, you've been at this for a long, long time now. It's a, a, a passion project. I, I went looking for an Antarctic history podcast um, a decade ago and no one was making one. And I, was, I realized that I had the bookshelf and the interest that I could do it. So I just gradually started piecing together the skills and equipment necessary to, to start. Um, it's a fairly, it sounds like it is, it is a homemade project with no yeah. audio training and I've kept it, I've, I've improved my audio editing skills since then, but I haven't brought that into the podcast because I want it to sound consistent from start to finish. Right. Yeah. Well, um, anyway, it's, it's wonderful. I, I love that you've stuck with this and it's got a, it's got a coherent focus and I really appreciate you taking the time to go back and listen to my series again from the beginning, like the beginning, beginning. And that's, um, that, that means a lot. So that's, that's wonderful. Well, it, it stands out to me as an important series because it, Features Antarctica, but the topic is uh, Antarctica is tangential to the actual importance of the series, and I I've re-listened to it three times in its entirety now, 
and I'm still picking up insights from it. It really, it really strikes me as potent podcasting. And the fact that it is uh, a limited series, it, it has that really tight focus. And that's actually one of my questions for you. What was the ratio of recorded material to output? Oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've never really counted, but when I went to Antarctica, I know I came home with more than 100 hours of audio and the finished piece is what, two and a half hours? So yeah, 100 to one, basically. Um, and when, I mean, any of, in the, the first series I did very differently because I, I wasn't there. Um, I did the interviews remotely um, and then I had some field recordings done by someone else. So again, I don't, I don't know if I quite had a hundred hours, but I had, I had many, many hours and many, many interviews. You could, I could spend an hour or an hour and a half on the phone with someone and only use 10 minutes of it. Um, but you know, I mean, when you do an interview that, that, that is that long, part of it is getting to know the person and the character and the importance of where it all fits into the story. So, you know, as a storyteller, and, you know, interviews are one of my favorite things in the world. You go in, you go into an interview with, with a big question and then little questions and then small questions. And, and really you want to get to know the answers to all of them. And, but in the process of doing that, in the process of that, the part that's in, essential to your storyline, the part that really needs to translate to the rest of your audience is quite small. And I, th I think... You know, when you're doing a, a narrative storytelling piece like this, you're working with a storyline, you're working with a narrative arc, and there's only so much that goes into that. So I, I, it does feel daunting, but for me, it feels quite natural and normal because that's the process that goes into making a story. It's like writing a book. It's like writing poetry. It's a million thoughts get boiled down into, if you're writing haiku, five lines. That's, that's the way it goes. What was your perspective on Antarctica prior to becoming involved in the Homeward Bound project and making your series? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I've been reflecting on it. Um, I, I mean, I had the National Geographic version of it. Of course, I did a lot of research um, to, to learn more about it. Um, and one of the funny things that I did actually... Uh, as I was, as I was producing the first series, is I went on YouTube and I found uh, like a twenty-four hour loop. Maybe it's not that far. Maybe it's not that long. Okay, we're going to call it a three-hour loop of wind recorded at the South Pole. And I would sit at my desk listening to the sound of the wind recorded at the South Pole. Not that I ever went to the South Pole, but that was you know right right there just to get this feeling of cold and desolation and um you know you can prepare for antarctica you can read a lot about it you can see lots of pictures you can talk to people but the truth is there's nothing that prepares you for it when you go there it is it is like nothing else you've ever seen like nothing else you ever feel and you will never feel or see those things again if and when you never go back there which is the most frequent way people go to Antarctica, it's, it's a one and done experience. 
unless you're a scientist who has a recurring pro- project there or, you know, you work there. But if you go there for an experience, it's it's a one-time shot. And you there's not much that can prepare you for that is the truth. And, and I think part of that when you're there is just being so far away and so isolated and the, and the feeling and the knowledge of that was, was very, was very real for me. Um, so in some ways, you know, any preparation that I ever did was, was useless. (laughs) Uh, and when I got there, um, it was, it was quite, it was quite stunning. And, you know, I, I've been to a lot of, I'm Canadian. I've been to cold places. I've been to very, very remote places. I've been, you know, north of the Arctic Circle. I've been to places in Northern Ontario that feel as remote as that. So I, I went with a little bit of, um, uh, uh, with a bit of a misconception that it was going to feel kind of, you know, normal to me that I've been to these faraway places and that's not the way it feels when, when you're there. There's something about being there that makes you feel very far away. And, and the one thing that I've really, and I've still not really, I've still not really come to terms with this, but when you're in Canada, when I'm in Canada, when I'm in these far away places that I've been to, I can look out on the land and say to myself, someone's been there before. There has been a there has been a person hunting and trapping and sealing. There has been animals there. There have been you know people who've lived here for millennia walking through a place. There's there's no place you can discover no corner no no there's nowhere you can go anywhere in North America that no one has been there before. But when you're in Antarctica and you're you're in my experience I'm on a ship and I'm and I'm I spent more time looking at the land than I did on the land because that's the way it goes when you're on a ship. And I kept looking at these sort of mountaintops and thinking to myself, it's really possible no one's been there. No one has been there. There are no peoples. There are no, are no indigenous peoples of, of Antarctica. There are very few animals who even live there. They come and they go and they migrate, but they really stay along the like the tiniest little shoreline, except for a few birds here and there. But really, when you look at a little mountain peak or off into a valley or somewhere on a, on a faraway glacier... It is entirely possible that no one has ever been there and maybe never will because there's a lot of rules and, and extremely remote. And that was that was the head trip that I've never really gotten over because it's it is just that remote. And um and I and I think humans in the Anthropocene, we have this notion or this kind of this kind of uh, trapping where we're like, oh, I wanna get there. <laughs> I wanna be that person. And I have zero predilection to climb mountains in Antarctica, zero, zero, zero. So it was just so fascinating for me to look at these mountains far away from on the ship and think, some, no one might ever go there. And that's, that's great. <laughs> but it has this, it has this un, unpersoned, unpopulated, unanimaled feeling to it that, I, that I'm still not past, actually, when I think, even when I articulate it, it's, I'm still quite flummoxed by it. The stories recounted in both series of This Is Our Time come to critical moments and they're both, well, in the first series it's preceded by a vote and in the second series it's about a vote, those critical moments. And it struck me as odd that leadership trainers operating at high latitudes in a maritime context put 
important decisions about those voyages to a vote. What's your perspective on that on that process? Uh, actually, I have a question for you. I'm conf- I'm I'm interested what you and what what you see as the question in the first series that was put to a vote. Maybe you're telling me something that I'm not even seeing in my series. I, I've been thinking about this, thinking what what was the question? I mean, there was the question to Lewis Pugh, but that was is that the one you're referring to? Which which one do you mean? The the option of having Lewis Pugh visit the ship to present or to go ashore was was couched as a vote. You're right. You're right. And you know what? That's um, <laughs> I. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't. Um, I didn't recall that detail. Um, that's very true. I mean, I guess what I know from the inside is it was a done deal. So many people wanted Lewis Pugh to come aboard that it was phrased as a question, but there was really uh, there there really wasn't uh, there wasn't an option because they were pretty pretty keen on the Lewis Pugh coming. So you know, and I and I've been reflecting on this. Um, you kind of gave me a heads up to think about this a few days ago, and. It is it is the most intriguing part of it. I mean, that's why in the second series, that's why um, that's why I made the whole story about the vote because it 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 was it was audacious. It was um, it was dangerous. It was confusing. It was emotional, and and really, it kind of could have gone any way. You know, it it, it was a natural climax in what happened. Uh, when I was on that ship, and when I when I came home to to map out what the story will be, the stories have to have a climax. There has to be something you're working towards. There has to be a tension, and ideally, there's a resolution from it. And and out of the resolution, you get a sort of parable or a, you know a, a lesson or or something to think about. So that's you know from a storytelling perspective that's why it was there it was it was it was not even a it was not even a thought or a question but why are the leadership team operating under that uh, I don't know maybe it's a bit of the same answer too that it's it was it's an experience that needed a crystallizing moment and when you're in um and you know Fabian speaks for herself in in the in the in the series that she's she definitely got a lot of feedback and backlash for the way that she approached the um, the vote, but she stands by it. She stands by it, and and even a few months later, in in um, in the series, I I share some time that we some interview that we had together when we were in New York. Um, I went to meet her in New York, and that was three or four months after we got back from the ship. And I went back to that moment and said, you know would you do it again the same way? And she said, more or less, yeah, I, I would have. Um, and the reason that she gave at the time was, you know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing now because I can't recall exactly what she said, but we were there to learn. This was a leadership moment. And and you need an experience in your life when you're learning new things, you almost need a didactic experience to, or a tangible experience to hang on to, to figure out where you stand in the realm of what you're learning about. It's experiential education, it's tactile. And um, and maybe that's why she does it, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm honest in my series, and I'll be honest with you now that it definitely flared tensions, it was, it was, 
not a straightforward, it was not a straight line. There was not a consensus. Yay, let's go do this. You did the right thing. I mean, it was, it was a moment that everyone remembered, everyone talked about. And even still, when I, when I can reconnect with these women all over the world, we go back to it and we talk about it. (laughs) We go, we regale these moments over and over again. And, you know, maybe in life, Maybe in life, uh, you need these moments to have as touchstones to really move from one place to another. I'm presently preparing notes for a presentation I'll be giving about leadership in Antarctica. And the historical examples that I draw on that colour my perception of the process are Admiral Richard Byrd, who is a leader that I have very little respect for, who regularly put important decisions to the vote as a way of abdicating responsibility for outcomes. He knew that there would be a lot of backlash to whichever way the process went. And I perceive his handing the vote to very large contingents, like the largest expeditions that Antarctica had seen at that point, um, as a way of shirking his responsibility as the leader. And at the opposite end of that spectrum is the Norwegian John Yeaver, who, in spite of having a terrible time on the ice with carbon monoxide poisoning in the base and the death of three expeditioners in a fall into the sea, um, owned the leadership in that context and took every negative outcome on his own shoulders. So I'm trying to process in my own experience of Antarctica and in in that historical context, what leadership at high latitudes and also coming from a maritime background, I'm accustomed to having a very strict hierarchy and the master of the vessel is, you, you quite often don't get any feedback or consultation. You're just told we're going here, this is what we're doing. And I'm fine with that because that works very well in the context of of operating ships. But um, yeah, I, I just keep listening to your series and I think you picked the story exceptionally well that that is the fascinating aspect of what happened. And you, I mean, you really nailed it that it's a maritime. We're on a ship. And it's very clear who's in charge on a ship. It's the captain's ship. And really, there were people, um, you know, there's the expedition leader, Greg Mortimer, and then there was uh, the faculty, which uh, was really a consensus-based organization, but more or less Fabian was the lead of this. So, you know, as much as Homeward Bound tries not to be a top-down hierarchy, um, the ship, it's and, and and it works to embody that in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I think this is uh, this is a feminist-based organization that doesn't want to have a top-down approach. So that was part of why it was a consensus. It was a question because the idea is that you empower a, the leader in the in the context that was delivered to us. The leader is there to empower everyone there and work in a way that's not authoritarian and. In some ways, I think that was her approach to this. The fact that the captain was on board with this is pretty, it was pretty interesting because, you know, he's a captain. It's legally and morally his responsibility for the ship. And I'm not 
I wasn't being hyperbolic when I said that we were not in calm waters. It was a raging storm. There, there, were, there, was, there was something at stake here. And to put it to a, a vote was dangerous in, from, a, from a psychosocial perspective because there were a number of people who already had anxiety because they were on a ship and they had had sustained um, uh, seasickness for days or they were anxious to begin with. Like, you know, it wasn't, it was this, that, being on a ship is not entirely safe. <laughs> and, and unless you've been on a ship, you don't know if you're going to be seasick. If, if you have experiences uh, in, on ships, you're, you say you're a maritimer, you probably know the answer to that. Uh, I would say almost no one else on the ship did. I had, I had, I didn't have sea legs. I'd, ne- I'd, I'd been on car ferries for, you know, an hour or two at a time, maybe, maybe once for 12 hours, but certainly never have I lived on a ship or gone anywhere to any extent. And that was very unknown, uh, both to me and a lot of people on the ship that having sustained seasickness <laughs> becomes a bit of a mental illness. Like you, you can't function. You can't, you can't, you can't, um, you can't be cogent. You have to be on drugs. You have to be lying down and sleeping. Like it doesn't, it, there were a lot of factors that led this to be quite exceptional. And the fact that the, that the captain of the ship was willing to do this is a lot because Greg Mortimer, the expedition leader is almost as qualified as a captain of a ship because he's done this so many times. And so he, he really heavily leaned on Greg Mortimer to, you know, provide the, the goodwill and the and the strength to say you know is it oh is it you know what do you think can we put this is this going to be okay and and so greg was really the the midwife of the decision in a lot of ways which is a little bit of insider talk but but the truth greg is exceptionally i'm not sure if you're familiar with greg Morner, but he's exceptionally experienced and in this regard and um and his experience really carries him and he's a wonderful wonderful calm man that everybody, everybody loved from the captain down to the most anxious person aboard. He was, he was the Buddha. I've not met Greg. I know him by reputation and I have, I've seen the ship that was named after him. And I think that that speaks, speaks volumes that if you've been operating in Antarctic waters to that extent that someone names a ship after you, you've got the goods. (laughs) The, The first series, one of the participants in the interviews mentioned that, um, they found it confronting that people were being challenged in the sort of ways that you've just spoken about without a mental health professional on board. Was there a, a psychologist or a, a someone someone available in that role during the second voyage? Yes, that was uh, one of the changes that they, uh, that was the biggest piece of feedback they got after the first expedition. And on the expedition that I was on, there was a clinical psychologist. Um, and then since, since then, they've improved and strengthened that in that regard, because I think it was, uh, it was overlooked um, initially. I think they, I, they had coaches on board that are, um, you know, and I think that was the naivety heading in that that was going to be okay. And the feel good experience of being there and the camaraderie and the sisterhood was going to get them through any potential challenge. And they realized, no, that was not enough. We actually need professionals. So in fact, one of the women who was on my expedition, expedition two is a clinical psychologist. And, uh, she, um, with a particular niche in this regard, and she went 
on, I think the third or the fourth, and she's now continuously involved. So they, they, that's, that is something that they have genuinely improved and strengthened. And I think they're continuing to go in that, in that direction. Um, and it was needed. The first series, there's an unanswered question that became a, a sort of critical moment in which Lewis Pugh was asked what, what structural changes would he make to ensure that women held more leadership roles in high latitudes. And he answered with an anecdote that I think was a pat response, but it offered him the only insight he could find, but it sort of missed the mark and that that became part of the story. How would you answer that question? What do you see as the barriers to women leading at high latitudes? Wow. Yeah, I went back. Um, I, some of the details of that story had uh, escaped my memory. It's just been so many years. <laughs> I realized there was some very, very dated elements to the story of Lewis Pugh, um, you know, including pulling Putin and to have in the hockey room to have a discussion about uh, about getting the Rossi uh, accord signed and and flagging down Abramovich this this is just not what you brag about in 2023 good thing anyway um I, I he totally missed the mark I mean it, it's kind of, he missed the mark in that he didn't answer the question he missed the mark in that he answered the question with with the response basically that you know it was the limiting beliefs of women who why they couldn't solve the problem and that's why um monica raya who's a lovely woman from costa rica she's um she's a, a an electric vehicle um advocate ted speaker she's a brilliant woman and she pushed him and she's she said actually i don't agree with you you know just you know I couldn't have done what you did because I wouldn't have been in the men's locker room, period, full stop. I wouldn't have wanted to talk to Putin on a sideline, but other than that, I wouldn't have been offered that. And I think, um, you know, from a completely structural point of view, these women's spaces and these men's spaces need to be reconciled. And, and I, and, I don't have a particularly incredible answer for you because um, I don't know if I've seen an example about this, but wh what does it take for women to be in that high latitude leadership? Um, well, it takes a reckoning of an entire society because we, you know, if women are going to take that leadership in that role, um, there's a lot of other work to be distributed and shared, and there's a lot of recognition. There's got a, a, a lot of revisioning of what makes a powerful woman. There's, um, we, we need a lot of role models. We need people who are out there doing it and able to do it and continuing to do it. People like Jacinda Ardern, who, you know, was, was voted prime minister while she was still pregnant and then brought her baby with her to what was it, the UN High Council or the, the EU, uh, because she was still breastfeeding. And like these sort of, these spaces that have been uniquely structurally organized to only support men um, or, or only be, it's not that women are not allowed per se, but you know, there has to be, there has to be a reality in place for them to, to get there. Um, and one of the one of the broader aims of Homer Bound 
is something that I'm seeing happening. And it, and it was a little bit, you know, when, when Fabian Datner was speaking about this in 2015, 2016, it seemed a little bit kind of like, you know, high level, I don't know what you mean. But her idea was, I want to create a global cohort of women who are living all over the world, who are working on their own thing, and then working together. And when they come together, they have a connection and um, uh, a, a connection and a greater reason. And there, and there's, 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 um, you know, that like the, the, the cheesy word is a club. There's a club of women and that's not, it doesn't need to be elitist. I mean, frankly, it is a little elitist. It costs a lot of money. It's a lot, it's very hard to get there, but it's about having a cohort of women who are growing and connecting and being and, and supporting each other. And they're there to help have a common cause and they're there to help do things. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a tiny little grain of sand and it's growing. And, and it's about women who are connecting with other women who are not just white and privileged and educated and powerful. It has to be happening on so many other levels on different continents with indigenous people, with, with, um, you know, non-binary folks. It's got to, the women's movement has the opportunity if, if championed and directed in the right way to be a, to be kind of a, 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 a prototype of how this moves forward. You know, if, if women are able to lead in a way that's that's consensus-based, if they're able to lead in a way where it's not authoritarian, if they're able to lead in a way that asks and leads with and with questions and answers and not, you know, demands and requ- and, and and requirements. I think, you know, it's a, it's a structural change and I think that women are suited to do it and I think women need a lot of um a lot of help and encouragement by other women and by men and by a structure that is redesigned to fit the needs and requirements. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a whole lot needs to happen, but it, it, it just really has to begin with them doing it and, and being troubadours out there doing it and then more people doing it and doing it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg did an amazing job 50 years ago, but we need another Ruth Bader Ginsburg because, you know, the world changes, the world continues. One, one is not enough. We gotta, we have to have a looping continuation of that kind of leadership and change making and out there being, um, being an advocate and being audacious. You keep answering multiple questions. It's great that, um, (laughs) you've incorporated so much into your answers that I actually keep crossing questions off. This is great. (laughs) You're making my job so easy. (laughs) There we go. Finishing up, I've got two questions, one that I've asked of many participants in the series and one that I'm adding to um, incorporate for creators like yourself. The first, um, what was the most inspiring and what was the most harrowing experience you had in Antarctica? Mm-hmm. The most inspiring, uh, gosh, there were a lot. Um, I mean, there was uh, the most inspiring and harrowing moment was, uh, I believe it was Nico, Nico Harbor, which is uh, really just a, there's no building there. It's just, it's a well-known harbor. 
when you go to Antarctica, the, the places that you can and cannot visit the land and walk around are, are very pre-described. Um, and, and you have to account for every single person that goes off on land. And one of the places is called Nico Harbor. And it, it is, um, I think, you know, it, it's sort of got a, a cul-de-sac in a way. And, and then, a, you know, a penguin colony mixed with a seal colony that was, we were there in, in the molting time. So lots of seals, lots of, um, lots of penguins. And I kind of wandered off and it was actually snowing that day, which it doesn't often actually does you think it'll be snowing all the time when you're there but it it really is a desert so it doesn't snow very often and walking down this very snowy spot and I sat down on this uh boulder or something and there was a glacier just across sort of at the end of the the cul-de-sac of this inlet and the glacier calved and it was this thunderous melting um caving glacier hitting the water and the sound is something I'll never forget because I live by sound um and it was both beautiful and shocking in one to see that and uh it was a reminder you know it is in some ways natural for glaciers to calve but you know watching it right in front of your eyes was a whole other a whole other moment uh for sure um and then I think straightly the most harrowing part was was this decision, you know, of what to do, what we were going to do, and what what the part, what the role of the ship was going to be when the vote was cast. Do we or do we not go out into the open ocean, out into the southern, the southern ocean where weather was coming in? It had been a really rocky night. It was really the weather was really bad. And, you know, I really was not sure <laughs> how that was going to go, which I was almost as terrified about as when we left um, Argentina and got ready to sail across the Drake Passage. I, um, you know, I, f I felt, I did not feel immortal in that moment. I felt like, I don't know, will I get to the other side and back? I just, I just did not know. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And it took a little while to get comfortable to be being on a ship. And um, to, when you cross, I mean, you're two days in nowhere, nowhere. And that was terrifying as well. That's, um, this isn't a question. It's um, working in Antarctic tourism. I would sometimes have guests say to me, I hope we have a really big storm on the Drake. And <laughs> that would sort of leave me speechless it's like no no you don't so like, yeah i do <laughs> when you ask a mariner what's the worst storm they've ever been in they will give you an answer but they might be staring off into the distance thinking about a friend that's no longer with us because they didn't survive the worst storm that they were in and um i like calm seas <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, I I was um uh yeah. As much as I was looking for a good storyline, I did not want a bad crossing on the Drake. I was okay that that was not the uh that was not the climax of the story. <laughs> um final question, if there was any one person in the world that you could share your output with, and I'm speaking specifically to this is our time, who would that be? 
Hmm. Oh, wow. Who would I dream would listen to it? Um, I actually think the person that I would dream to connect to on this would be Rebecca Solnit. And um, that's also because I happened to bring her book with me, which wasn't even, I, I had been introduced to her somewhere like about a year before I went away to Antarctica. And I'd been reading little bits and pieces of her work, uh, both her books and the she's articles uh, regularly published in The Guardian, among other places. And I happened to pick up one of her books called The Mother of All Questions. And I brought it with me. And I, and it was small. I needed a small book because I knew I really wouldn't be reading very much when I was there. But I wanted something that would be I could read, you know, two pages of, and it would kind of get my brain thinking and maybe push me off in another direction. I, I needed a book to be redirectional. And I chose this book by Rebecca Solnit uh, called The Mother, of All, the Mother of All Questions. And in this book, probably on page nine, I think, she talks about the concept of tend and befriend. And tend and befriend is really, I would also call it the third way. When, when faced with stress and strife, mice, uh, you know, we know this phrase, you, mice go into a, a fight or flight system. And Rebecca went, um, Rebecca looked at a study that had been done around 2000 by, by um, a psychologist in um, California called, what's her name? Sally, I'm going to forget her name. Hold on. That'll come to me. Um, and in this, in this article, um, the psychologist went back to look at the original work that had been done by um, the person who had discovered or who had coined the coy's tendon befriend, or sorry, he had coined the, the phrase fight or flight. And she looked at it and she said, you know, all of the researchers in this, um, who did this experiment were men, it was done in 1923, all of them were men, and then all of the rats were men, or males. What would happen if I redirected this story, if I, re if I remounted this, this experiment, and I had some female researchers, and I put some female rats in there, would it, could it possibly be a different outcome? Could anything different come of best? And actually, what she discovered is there were there were three options. There was the fight, and there was the flight, and then there was tend and befriend, which is where the rats would stop and you know ask, uh, you know, seek consensus. They would take care of their babies. They would they would do something nice for someone else before they did you know before they took the thing that they needed to do. Whatever it was in this experiment, it was a remarkably different option that they offered themselves. And she outlined this. Um, she outlined this in in her book, this idea, and it actually ended up being the idea that underlined my entire experience, because we had a fight or flight moment, and there were people who were fighting, and there were people who were who were trying to fly, you know, flee. They went and hid in the rooms, but then there was this whole other thing that happened. The third thing which is where people were working on consensus and people are putting the needs of others before their own. And there are people who were working to make a connection of a community and not just the self. So aside from 
enjoying so much of what Rebecca Solnit does. And she's a she's an incredible champion of climate change. She's a new book coming out that's exactly about that. I would love for her to know how important that one little paragraph in that book was to my entire experience, which helped to explain a whole lot of other things to me. That's an astounding answer for the first time that question's come out of the gate. Thank you. And I hope that um, someone listening has those, those six degrees of separation or less that puts your content in Rebecca Solnit's path. It would be a dream come true. She's a brilliant woman. <laughs> That's Thank fantastic. You so much for your time, Samantha Hodder. It's been a privilege to speak to you after having you in my ears for the last couple of years. And um, I'm really grateful for the insights that you've brought to Ice Coffee. Well, I am I am so honored to be here. And I, I love that it took it's almost better it took this long to get her because we got to know each other a little bit in our email exchanges over the years and um, really want to thank you for the the thought and attention uh, that you've given this story and I wish you well with your Antarctic endeavors and, and I hope you go and make some change in Antarctica too, which I gather is part of your uh, bigger plan. Thanks so much. Awesome. Take care, Matt. Nice to meet you. You too. At the time of recording, Homeward Bound is in its eighth iteration, reading directly from their website, Our Vision. By 2036, we have supported and engaged a globally diverse leadership network of 10,000 STEM women who are ensuring the sustainability of our planet. No matter what you think of Homeward Bound, that's a laudable vision, and a hell of a lot better than the nothing that most people are doing about the state of the world. Both seasons of This Is Our Time are available through all good podcast aggregators. You can find Samantha Hodder's webpage at Samantha Hodder, all one word, and Hodder is spelt with a double D, dot org. At the end of episode 140, I name-checked my colleagues from my time on the water in 2022, and my concern that I might leave someone out turned out to be valid because I left out Timsey. Timsey arrived on site in the tugboat Titan and departed the site in the tug Titan, most days never coming ashore. So I didn't spend a lot of time in his company. But the time I did spend in his company, I was impressed with Tim's ability to make any vessel do exactly what he wanted with very little apparent thought. It almost looked like he was part of the boat. And Timsey's calm, he's good company, he's funny, and I'm really sorry that I left you out. And by way of apology... Here's a brief song I stole and adapted from the Luxmiths. Dear Timsy, about the present I owe you, I sang you a song instead. It's not very good, but it's not very long to leave. Take care and appreciate the coffee. And furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is best avoided. Closing out this episode is Mel White's recording of the glacier carving at Nico Harbour, mentioned in the interview. <clears throat> Hi Sam, good chatting with you here at Nico Harbour. It's Mel White. Just thought I'd continue on from the conversation we kind of started on the shore, looking at the glacier. 
such a beautiful spot. So powerful. Hearing the glacier rumble. <sighs> Stir something quite deep within your soul. A testament to the power of Mother Nature. And as we see ourselves as the glacier women, maybe it's a testament to the power of us. Hmm.